0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference Series, uh, which we're resuming, by the way, in September of 2021 in New York. Willie, I don't know if you'll be able to make it uh, flying in from Hong Kong, but we'd love to have you there. And that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're excited to bring you the latest in our series of SALT Talks on uh, crypto, digital assets, and Bitcoin with the great Willie Wu. Uh, if you're in the crypto space at all and you don't follow Willie, I don't know where that what rock you're living under, basically, and if you don't follow crypto and you're looking to learn more about it, uh, there's no one better to follow both his writings and his Twitter feed and everything he puts out uh, than Willie Wu. Uh, Willie is an on-chain analyst, a new field that extracts market intelligence signals from Bitcoin's blockchain. Uh, he writes the Bitcoin forecast, which is the most popular paid newsletter in the crypto industry. Again, I couldn't recommend that newsletter highly enough, and I think Brett our host today will echo that sentiment. Hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, who's the President and Chief Operating Officer at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. I would say Brett is sort of our uh, crypto enthusiast in, in chief, and I would actually revise that to say our Bitcoin maximalist in chief. He's very much a Bitcoin guy, although a fan of everything that's going on in the ecosystem. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Brett for the interview.
1: Thanks, John. Willie, thanks for uh, joining us. I think we're going to have some fun today. It'll be educational. I'm going to tease part of our discussion with your anthem, right? And we'll explain this. Uh, we'll explain this later to our uh, to our, our 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 fans here. Um, before we hop into the fun stuff, can you explain? And I am a subscriber, and and, and do echo John's uh, suggestion that that people should do likewise. Can you explain what on-chain analytics are? Because I think again for you know, those of us that are traditional investors, these are just not tools that we had or are just, we're not generally familiar with. So if you can just provide a quick one one and then we'll jump into the fun stuff.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Bitcoin is quite unique um, in that it's got a public blockchain. So every transaction that we see is totally visible um, on that ledger. So there's this whole process where we can pull that data and analyze it and essentially get, um, like demand and supply um, from different investors coming in and out of Bitcoin. And, um, you know, it turns out there's a lot of signal in that. You can make um, forecasts and predictions. Um, you can diagnose what's happening with the network at any time. Um, like recently, we just had a massive uh, drop in the hash rate when there was a big power outage in China affecting miners. So you could see um, all sorts of, um, you know, Things that happen um, on the ledger and um, within the matrix of the network.
1: You, you mentioned the the uh, what happened in China with the mining going offline. I, I think the thing that paid people paid more attention to was we had a, a bit of a you know a flash crash, if you will, this weekend, right, where we had about a fifteen percent decline in half an hour. And as we taped today on April twenty second, we're trading you know, at 54,000 or so down from, you know, a high of 63,000. Can you talk about sort of that decline, what you think triggered it? Um, uh, Yeah, I'd I'd be curious what your insights are.
2: Sure, Um, like, yeah, we were trading in um, sort of the high range of 60 60 to 62,000. Uh, like a few weeks ago, and um, you know, it's it was it was trading at a near all-time high. And whenever we're at an all-time high, traders like to go long because you know there's no resistance overhead. And the whole market was very highly leveraged. Um, there was more um, open interest contracts in the derivative markets than we've seen any time in this year. And so when um, you're in a situation where um, the market's highly um, levered, it's very emotional. And so what happened in China was um, there was um, a power sort of outage. Um, like Chinese, um, the Chinese power companies were undergoing a safety inspection, and so it looked like um, the the miners in China, which some estimates are between twenty five and forty percent of the um, mining power on the Bitcoin network, is located in a, this particular area. Um, it. It, these these miners went offline, and they went offline at a very critical point um, because the, essentially the the Bitcoin network um, balances you know the the amount of hash power these miners throw at the network with a difficulty adjustment. Um, so this sort of keeps everything in check. So our block times keep being processed every ten minutes, and so the difficulty just went up, and within um, like something like twelve hours of that difficulty adjustment, um, the miners uh, went offline in that part of China. So we had a reduction of um, compute power thrown at the network um, just at a time when we needed it adjusted for this higher amount of compute that um, is normally um, thrown at it. So immediately the, um, the network started to slow down. Um, the amount of the amount of um, mining, the compute, um, was not sufficient to balance off the difficulty, and so block time started to slow down. And you can imagine if um, hash power starts to drop out of the network, um, and there's a, there's always been this correlation between hash power and price. Um, you know, we're in this highly levered zone, and um, speculators sold off, and um, and so yeah it was it was a, a sell-off that was quite um, unprecedented for this year in that uh, nearly five billion um, contracts got liquidated a um, hundred was a million accounts were um, liquidated across across the whole ecosystem. Um, if you would include um, the entire um, crypto asset space, it was nearly ten billion dollars of liquidation. so uh, we had a big flash crash.
1: so I mean if I can put that in layman's terms is, is what we really have is we have people who are levered, right 20 to 100 to one, right and at, as the price starts falling, right, you have people that get sold out, and that puts pressure on the market, which then sells out more people, right? And then you get this sort of cascading effect is that, is that really the, that's, that's the dynamic you're describing, right?
2: Exactly, it's uh, we call it a long squeeze. Um, Either um, you know, if you're if you're um, if you're trading on leverage, you're essentially um, buying assets with money you don't have, and so liquidation is essentially the bank foreclosing on you. Um, So you know, when that happens, your entire positions get sold, and that's dumped onto the market, and obviously that pushes the price down. And then it sort of cascades to the people below you, with you know, with their risk limits, see a little bit below, and it just creates this chain reaction, and the whole thing starts collapsing um, until until everyone's liquidated, um, and then the price bounces back up. So,
1: I, so we do a weekly Bitcoin show because there's just so much news in Bitcoin. And one of the things we someone asked yesterday was, you know, how is the market different today than it was in 18? And the answer I gave, which I'd be curious to your reaction and tie it back to this, is in '18 it seemed like everyone was speculating. People, right, were buying Bitcoin to sell it at another price to make money to go buy stuff with, right? This, this sort of idea of hodling or being like an investor, I think, really hadn't taken hold. And I, and I can tell you, as an institutional investor, we own you know six hundred million dollars or so of Bitcoin. We're investors, right? We we haven't sold any Bitcoin, right? You know, we deal with the ups and downs, Um, but it does seem that there's still a, and I don't know what percentage of the market, right, is composed of speculators, right? And price action tends to be driven by the marginal buyer or seller. I guess I just like your reaction to the market composition today versus what it used to be, and you know, again. Is it speculators that are driving the market or is it this institutional adoption that we're seeing?
2: Um, yeah, the market's completely different from 2018. Um, well, 2018 was a bear market, right?
1: So that, that, that's- I'm that's sorry, one so
2: 2017,
1: thing. I mean when I, when I say that. 2017
2: was, um, you know, Bitcoin had a lot of um, exchange activity but very little of it was um, levered. Um, we didn't have well-developed um, futures markets. Uh, the leverage you could get was on margin, so borrowing rather than um, derivatives. And so um, the 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 price was more well less. Um, yeah, I would say it's it's less, less levered. Um, but I'd say also right now, um, you know, we've got this very large dominant derivatives market, um, like the, I'm just looking here, um, the normally derivatives market is was much, much higher than spot, sometimes five to 10 times higher. Um, we've just flushed out <laughs> a lot of the derivative traders. So um, even now, post that flush, um, the derivative volume is 50% higher than what we're seeing on um, spot volume. Uh, I would say, you, you know, you would say the, you might think that um, the derivative market has a lot of price control over um, Bitcoin, but actually that's not entirely true. It has a very, um, like, short-term dominance, you know, because, like, if you're going to buy um, Bitcoin on margin or, um it's you're you know you're there. For whatever you buy, you're going to have to sell out sooner or later because it's it's a short-term trade. And so ultimately, what's really important in um, this uh, market is the long-term investors who are coming in to buy and hold. Whether they're coming in to buy and accumulate or whether they're selling, ultimately, when we're looking into the weeks and months ahead. That's going to determine the price of Bitcoin, essentially the demand and supply that's that's, um, dominated by the long-term investors. And this is what we're looking at on-chain. We can't actually see what's happening so much in terms of the trade positions on-chain. We can't see any of that. You have to look at data coming off the exchanges. But um, whatever happens in the short-term, even if traders are shorting, and when you see uh, like long-term investors coming in to buy and accumulate, you'll know that it's going to be the traders that are going to get wrecked. Um, they cannot um, continue to short and sell off into this demand that's coming from long-term investors.
1: So you, you raise an interesting point. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion that the influx of institutional capital is going to reduce the volatility of Bitcoin. I actually don't happen to share that view, which seems to be consensus. And I hadn't really thought about what you just said, which is that we have much more leverage in the system today than we did in 17. So that makes me feel more strongly that you know we're a ways away before Bitcoin between becomes a less volatile asset. What's your view on that?
2: Yeah, um, I've run a projection on volatility. I've got the volatility of Bitcoin since the markets first opened in two thousand and nine, um, and if you plot that on a um, you know logarithmic scale, where um, you know originally the volatility was over one hundred percent over a sixty-day period. Um, the, it is coming down. It is coming down. It's a decay. It, it's kind of like a half-life of decay. And most people will not notice it um, because they're only looking in the last few months or the last year. But if you plot this over the long-term scale, we're looking, um, I can't remember offhand. I think it's about in a decade, give it another dozen years. Um, it's actually on track to cross under the peak volatility of USD euro, um, which is quite surprising. Um, but that's that's what happens when you, you map this over the long term. Um this this asset class is still very, very much in its infancy. Um, you know, like it's taken us twelve years to get to some somewhere between two and two and a half percent of the world population having exposure to it. We've just broken one trillion dollars of um, capitalization um, It's set to get a lot bigger and as we get that kind of scale into the system and that kind of capital, it will reduce in volatility and we have seen that for twelve years
1: yeah i i guess I guess when I say. The volatility not being reduced. I, I, I'm speaking more in, in, in a noticeable way in the next one to three years. I, I, I definitely agree with oh, okay. you know when if, if if you scope out the time to a decade, you know I, I certainly agree. Um well, I, I'd say I've been
2: seeing the volatility over the last say three years reduce as well. Now the reason for that is that I think um, very I think very strongly. Like in 2018, we had very high volatility because um, all of the leverage was essentially one exchange that was unregulated called BitMEX. And there was a lot of um, kind of, if you've been trading that market, you could see a lot of, um, maybe you call it trader games, where, um, you know, these stock positions, you know, the defensive lines where people would exit their positions, they were being hunted um through uh, essentially um, you could either call it manipulation or you could you could call it game theoretic trading where you're pushing the price in a particular direction to to um, take out traders. Um, that was very evident. Um, I used to say um, the short-term price action of Bitcoin was essentially a random walk um, to liquidate the most traders on bitmex and um, obviously in, in that kind of era you would see this ridiculous amount of volatility where you have these wicks of price going you know up um, you know whatever it was hundreds of dollars in minutes and then it would revert back down as traders were being liquidated and the price action was the, it's like a square wave like these barts that would go up down and very choppy and um, now we're in this era where you know you've got like 20 derivative exchanges, and most of them are playing very nicely. Um, BitMEX, now a very much minority of it. You've got the CME, which is wholly um, regulated. Um, And so there's less volatility just in the sheer mechanics of um, the the industry, um, the infrastructure there for for trading these derivatives. Um, And then when you add to that um, this this kind of twenty twenty one year tailing in twenty twenty, where we've had very very large spot demand coming in from institutions, um, were yeah we're, it's 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 limiting the downside um, sell off from um, what you'd normally expect um, from derivatives. Um, so you know I, I keep in mind you know, this kind of idea where you've got an organic price of uh, Bitcoin supported by um, spot investors, and that can be modeled using on-chain data. Um, and you can model that quite closely, and then you can measure the actual price of Bitcoin, which is really um, determined in part um, by the speculators. And so you've got the speculative um, premium that, that happens. and. Whenever the price gets close to that floor price, that organic price, um, it's very difficult to squeeze the price below that valuation. The only time I've seen that happen was in um, you know the early part of last year when we had the COVID event where all markets sold off. And it, it did momentarily drop below that for a few weeks until all of the um, deleveraging had completed. Um, so... Um, yeah, I think I think the volatility is dropping, um, and it's just from the sheer amount of demand coming in from um, institutions currently.
1: Yeah, I think you know we have a we have an ETF application before the SEC, so I'm sort of conversant in, in, in some of the terms that are important to them. I, I think they would use a lush, polite word and say that the market was a, subject to manipulation. Years ago, and of course, we're arguing that with the maturation of the market, um, that you know it's just not as susceptible to it as it was, you know, when it was. I I concur. It's still, still, you know, a very young asset class, but you know, it's grown up a lot, you know, over the last four or five years. Um, Can you speak to sort of the just the state of the market today, and maybe you can tie in why I opened our session with a 1987 song by rick ashley and maybe <laughs> uh, maybe tie that to you know what your forecast is which i think uh i think our our listeners would en- would enjoy hearing
2: yeah it's um we're seeing currently an unprecedented supply shock um so normally you see this kind of um this kind of depletion in inventory on spot exchanges is um, essentially like the long-term buyers come in and accumulate and move those coins into uh, cold storage. Um, And this kind of buyer is kind of the smart money buyer that buys in early um, before, you know, the price starts rocketing. You know, when you take a lot of the supply out of the market, it, it does rocket up. And that happened in 2017 in the sort of one to two and a half thousand dollar ban before we rocket it up to twenty thousand in the in the following three quarters of um, twenty seventeen. And you know that depletion of the smart money coming in um, that lasted no more than five months. And like this time we're at what is it? Oof, I don't know, is it 13 months already? It's just so much coins are being scooped off the exchanges and um, you know, I work with Glassnode who do a lot of the on-chain metrics, and and they've got a metric where we look at the um, the wallets on the exchanges. I mean, not wallets on the network, and we cluster them, and we figure out um, essentially who are the different participants, and we look at them, and we go. Is this person a highly liquid person who seems to buy and sell, buy and sell? And then we have the, what I call the Rick Astleys of this world who buy their Bitcoins and will never let it down. You know, They just keep buying and buying without much history of selling. And very similar to that supply shot we're seeing of coins moving off the exchanges, we're seeing these Rick Astley um, genre of, of, of accumulators of, of investors that are buying and holding um, they are coming in very strong. So we're seeing a net flow of coins from um, participants that that have been traditionally more or less speculating or buying over the short term and then selling. Um, maybe they are like traders that trade in and out of altcoins. Uh, but essentially these new people, um, the Rick Astleys, are coming in and they're just buying and locking up the coins. Um, and so... That's been a very big driver of this bull market. That um, there's been strong buying, um, and even like we can measure the size of the purchases and the movement of that capital. And um, you know, a lot of the conversation has been about institutional investors. Um, that's true, but also um, I'm thinking that there's a lot of high net worth investors coming in here, coming to buy and. You know, slugs of $1 million at a time. Um, And we saw that um, very strong in the sort of first two months of 2021. So, yeah, I think it's these guys, institutions, the um, high net worth guys that are coming in and scooping that up. They tend to store um, into cold storage wallets, which um, are very visible on chain. Um, Whereas retail, um, which um, you know, they're just starting to come in the last two to three weeks, um, a lot of retail numbers are going up. Um, retail tends to store their coins on exchanges, like the coin bases of this world, uh, and that's less visible on the blockchain, obviously, because they don't take off the exchanges. Uh, but we are seeing um, a lot of numbers climb lately with um, more retail type
1: investors. So you um, uh, recently raised your your price target from two hundred and fifty to three hundred. Um, I guess can you put a time frame on that, and can you talk about you know how you get to that, how you derive that, and you know what drives that? Yeah, it's
2: a it's a very um, kind of dynamic um, like model, in that um, it uses you know what we call mean reversion, essentially a moving average, an all time moving average of the. Of the price of Bitcoin, and um, if you do that, it's hit every single top that um, Bitcoin's experienced in in, in its twelve-year history. Um, and it's it follows a particular trajectory, and um, you know to get a target, you kind of have to get an idea of where the top will be, um, when it will hit that. Um, that, that line, essentially the all-time moving average across a multiplier, that model um, is looking like it mo- is shooting for three to four hundred, even higher. It just really depends how um, the price action of Bitcoin acts over the next, um, you know, half half of the year. Um, but typically, we in all past cycles we've seen. Bitcoin top out around the December, um, at least the fourth quarter of of the year after the halvening. Um, and, you know, like Bitcoin is like this asset that's very, very much locked into an algorithm where every four years we have a halvening um, where the inflation rate of the co- new coins minted into the supply gets halved. And that creates this... Um, like reduction in sell pressure by one half. And so essentially that gives us a little shove on the price. If you've got half the amount of sell power from new coins being mined, um, you get a bullish impulse. And um, in all the past cycles, it, it seems that that bullish impulse manifests into this crazy run up. You know, the last one was um, twenty, no, 2017, took us from a 1000 to $20,000. Um, it tends to peter out around the fourth quarter, around December. So ballpark in December, um, that top cap model of mine, um, it could be anywhere in the three to 400000 range. It might even go higher. But we need to see how it performs over the next um, six months.
1: I, mean, I want to dive on into this, ruling because I'm going to challenge you a little bit here. Um, sure. So- and I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat. So, you know, just remember, I'm super bullish as I challenge <laughs> you. But it seems to me, whenever I've seen a great trade that's so obvious, they eventually go away. So, just as an example, you know, last summer we looked very hard at the grayscale arbitrage, which was a fantastic trade. And we passed on it, which is probably a little bit of luck, but it just seemed too obvious, felt like everyone was doing it. And whenever I've seen that, it just means that. You're sort of late in the cycle for that that sort of trade. The obvious trade in Bitcoin that everyone seems to have is, well, this cycle is going to be like the last. Like, when are you going to sell? What is it going to be? December? Is it October? And my experience tells me that this cycle is going to be different one way or the other. Like, maybe we've topped. Maybe we'll top in July, or maybe we're going to just blow through December. And just keep going higher and higher. And this cycle, from a time and price standpoint, will look. I think that the cycle, if I were to put odds on it, the likelihood that this cycle looks like the past one, I would have very, very low. Um, And obviously, I would skew to a longer bull market with higher prices because I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat. But I actually would think a shorter bull market to me is more likely than just a repeat of, of history. I, I just would like your reaction to that because it's just, there's there's so much discussion about, you know, where are we? Ari Paul talks about, well, we're in the fifth inning and he's basing it on prior history. And if everyone's got the same trade-on, it, it's going to be different than that.
2: Uh, you know, I kind of agree with you, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of team plating of this cycle to the past cycles. Um, I don't think anyone um, would have guessed that this cycle would be ripping up so quickly, so, so hard. Um, and I know a lot of the technical traders have been like, this is overbought. And it's just been on the red line consistently until the last, um, you know, I guess month, month and a half. Um, and my approach really is like, yeah, we got all these models. Um, For for starters, if you're trading the model, um, I remember 2017, we had like $10,000 and everyone said, uh, this is the top. And I look at the backtrace and I look at the on chain analysis of it, and it it could have been a top. It was touch and go. Um, And then it ripped and doubled. Um, It doubled to $20,000 in a matter of weeks. and so everyone's got this plan, um, beautiful plan, until the thing happens. And you know, I get people asking me, can you um, let me know when we get within 25% of the top? And I think back to 2017, I go, you know, well, didn't we just like, we, we, we doubled in I think just barely over two weeks, in two weeks, we went essentially from ten thousand. I don't have the chart in front of me. I should, but like it was something like we went from ten thousand to twenty thousand in two weeks. And um, every day, the price is running up thousands of dollars, and you you think, can I have a nice um, warning twenty five percent of the way to the top? And the whole thing is mayhem. Um, and so when you're in that mania phase of the market anything can happen the fundamentals have gone out the window and it's just highly speculative you'll see the price rise way above what on-chain um valuations will give it um you just don't know you it's like you're playing chicken with the freight train of speculative fomo so um i think that's gonna come into it and we're all gonna maybe the models work maybe they don't um but everyone's going to be in complete disarray when 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 we approach the top. That's that's always happened in Bitcoin. Um, I don't know if we're going to to top out early. Um, I think there's a fair chance. Um, there's a fair chance we might might just looking at some some of the the rates of climb. Um, you know, I look at I look at the the capital coming into the network. and I look at these bounds you can put on it based on the backtrace. Um, it's like, well, the price can't go beyond this part of this this price target because um, historically, you know, we haven't been able to break that with this amount of capital in the system. So there's there are bounds, um, and uh, I. If, you know, you project them forward, it seems like we're, we're going to close out this this cycle earlier. Um, but having said that, fundamentally, um, you know, looking at the institutions coming in, um, which maybe you have a better idea of, it looks like a lot of money is still coming in. Um, and, and it's kind of, Yeah, I I, I do get the sense that if that money is coming in and it's coming in near the late end of this year, um, the it could change a lot. And I, the you know the top the top model I have, it's a moving target based on essentially the price action that's happening throughout the year. Um, So. Having said, there's this target out there, and it's a very broad, generic target. It's very dependent on the time signature of that happening around December. Um, so, I, for anyone who's trading this and thinking, "Oh, three hundred thousand—that's hard and fast target," um, it changes. You know, I see three hundred thousand near January of this year because that was where, and that was conservative because it was based on past, you know, curving of that model. Um, but I think it's very subject to to um, change. Um, it's certainly not like Plan B's um, stock to flow model, where he's got a line in the sand, where this amount of scarcity models this price and this this valuation.
1: Um, and by the way, I don't mean you know. My approach to models is it's sort of like it's like riding a horse. You know, you ride it till it bucks you. You know what I mean? So you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm just wondering if this is the year we break the bu- the, the the model. Uh, in fact, w- w- John and I spoke with someone who runs one of the larger institutional businesses in Bitcoin, and, and he believes that that will happen for the reason you just said. He just said that the the in- the march of institutional capital is so large. And uh, it takes these folks time, you know, it just takes them time. And, you know, if, if they're going through their committees now, and they're coming in in the fall, like, they're, they're not worried about the cycle, right? They, you know, they're not going to be saying, well, it's late in the cycle, let's not invest, they're, they're going to be buying. Um, and that's where you could get, you know, sort of a um, a busted cycle. I'm, I'm not on board with Dan Held's super cycle. I said, I, I do think we're going to have a a bear market. I think that's just nature of, of everything I've ever traded, um, but I just think it's going to be different this time. But who knows? We'll find out. Um,
2: yeah, I agree. I, I think the whole thing's on a. Um, you know, it's a, it's. I feel like it's like um, it could go either way. Um, we could like if we get an influx of this very large capital from the very large institutions they could change everything um, but then also there's so much leverage in the system on the cycle and we haven't seen that in 2017 like just the amount of people I've heard that are like mortgaging their houses to buy more bitcoin or collateralizing their um, bitcoin on a block file loan to get fiat to buy more bitcoin um, even Funds are doing that. Um, so, you know, once the price starts to teeter, I could see um, a very large sell off and a large deleveraging event and that, that throws us into a, a bear market. But if this capital comes in near the tail end of this year, that's going to stop that from happening and it'll just run up higher because um, that deleveraging won't happen. Um, right. So,
1: so, I know. so, no. so the, the, there's one factor that that I don't hear people talking about, which I think about a lot, which is, as as we know, there are 900 Bitcoin, new Bitcoin mined every day, right? So mm. in fall, let's say when the Bitcoin price was 15,000, that represented 13.5 uh, million dollars a day, and. You know, PayPal and Square and Grayscale were able to scoop up that much just based on their their daily inflows and in buying. You know, today we're up to forty nine and a half million dollars, right? And you know, look, we we have a fund. We're buying Bitcoin every day. There are other people, right? So you know, that that's an absorbable amount. But when you start get to bigger numbers, right? You know, it, it's ninety million at a hundred thousand. I mean, this is just basic math. But you know, when you say the numbers. Right, you get to two hundred fifty thousand Bitcoin. Right, that's two hundred twenty-five million supply. And you know, I love Michael Saylor's idea of Bitcoin miners holding the Bitcoin on balance sheet. But most of them, you know, don't have access to the capital markets yet. We don't have, as a percentage of the miners, a very small amount of them. Right, are trading on public exchanges where they can raise debt and equity. So I think we have to assume. That that's that is supply that that will come onto the market. That's just a lot of incremental demand just to sustain the price. I guess. What are your thoughts on that, and and, and how does that affect your model, right? Again, we get to two fifty, right? That's two hundred twenty five million dollars. Then that, that new flows have to come in just to keep the price at two hundred fifty thousand. Am I thinking about that wrong?
2: yeah I, I, I really don't think the minor sell-off is anything that significant a lot of people look at the charts of of minor um, outflows into exchanges um, and I look at them every day um, you know I've got the whole chart every day I'm looking at it and I don't even look at it because it's so minuscule against um, against the buying power of um of, of a full blown bull market. Like we're seeing um, currently, at least on chain, it's 50,000 people are buying Bitcoin for the very first time. That means that uh, by my estimates, multiplied by three roughly, um, we're seeing 150,000 people that are buying Bitcoin for the very first time um, at the exchanges, never mind just looking on chain. So, um, gosh. Even excluding the institutions, just talking retail, um, it's like less than a tenth of a bitcoin um, per day. Like, like for each one of those new participants, it's very minuscule. Um, not, not very much talked about is um, the actual real sell power um, in this cycle is really the the. Um, the fees that are generated on these derivative exchanges. Um, like I was talking to one of the very large OTC desks, um, their head was giving me an estimate of the sell-off by exchanges from, you can think of it as a tax on trading and then that gets dumped into the market, converted to fiat to pay salaries and, and, and whatnot. Um, he, he estimated um, 1200 Bitcoins per day um, in 2020, um, is being dumped onto the market. Um, so you can think of that as a sell pressure, another kind of miners' um, sell pressure. It's like the exchange mining fees and dumping that on the market. Um, we've got a lot more bullish activity, a lot more trading volume 2021. Um, that's the one to look at. Um,
1: Wait, so when you this that, 900- what, just to be clear, so you're talking about like, that, for example, a Binance is making their money in Bitcoin and they need to pay employees. So they're selling some amount of the Bitcoin that their revenues come in to pay employees. Is that is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah,
2: as an example, I, I posted this um, last year. CZ mentioned that they um, pay the employees in BNB and they don't sell off to cash much. Um, but uh, we're talking <laughs> Uh, a, a, a heck of a lot of volume you know um, we're talking um, you know easily quarter of a trillion dollars a day in derivative volume um, most days um, so uh, you you take a small fee of that it, it's gonna it's gonna pale um, it's gonna make the make the miners fee tiny absolutely tiny compared to what these exchanges are doing and a lot of it does depend on whether they are um, stacking. SATs, essentially stacking those Bitcoins and holding it. Are they paying their staff in Bitcoin or are they selling to fiat? Um, and so that that's that's not an analysis I've done. That comes from OTC Desk. Um, I think to get a really good handle on it, it, you'd need to know exactly what the behavior of these changes are. But coming from an OTC Desk, um, I think they've got a pretty good handle of exactly what's coming out and going to fiat.
1: Uh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I guess re- relatedly, so we've been in this sort of 50,000 channel now for two months or so, give or take. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of the institutional buying, right? You know, it, it, there's been a lot of good news thrown at Bitcoin over the last two months, right? We had Brevin Howard, a big hedge fund, announced they bought, Dan Loeb, Ray Dalio just in the last week, right? Benmo opened up. Um, and we're at 54,000 which again we're up 80 90% for the year but where is this outside of you know the miners which you're saying isn't substantial and you know let's say exchange fees to pay compensation where is all the supply coming right cuz there's, there's a lot of talk about all the influx of demand and you know and how we're holding this trillion dollar level right here at 52 53,000 but it, it I'm an equities guy, I traded equities for my most of my career. It feels heavy to me. you know Bitcoin feels heavy to me. you know in equities trading they say when a stock gets lots of good news and it and it stops going up on that good news, it's a good time to sell. and um, again I'm ragingly bullish on Bitcoin, but you know for the last couple of weeks that's how it's been acting. It's like a stock that gets hit with a lot of good news but can't seem to break out. Um, So it's like your reaction to that in terms of who is selling based on your analysis?
2: Um, Let me just zoom in. I want to pull up a chart so I can get my bearings on the dates here. Um, So, you know, typically, and you see it on the blockchain, you see the age of coins that are moving, um, the age of coins that are moving out of wallets. Um, When you see coins moving out of wallets and they're moving to new participants, um, that's a sale. And so if we measure the age of those coins and the size of those coin movements, um, we, we've we seen since the entire history of Bitcoin, um, the OGs, the the whales that bought from early days, 2012 and earlier, when things were like under $100, those guys are divesting. And every single bull market rally, they divest a little,
1: divest a bit. Um, and we saw that. Um, interesting, Just you know, I talk to a lot of those guys, and they all deny it. So I believe your data, and they're probably lying to me. But none of them say they're selling.
2: Yeah, well, uh, maybe not recently. They certainly right. did, and um, you know, they certainly did up to March, and they stopped selling when Elon Musk started buying, <laughs> which is very interesting. And then the sellers, um, since then, and you know, they are whale sellers that have been selling that have been selling, um, have been selling um, since. Um, the OG stopped selling um, the, the age of coins have been um, much younger. And um, we saw a, a lot of that heading into the tail end of March for the quarterly rebalance. So uh, my guess is really the, the hedge funds that bought in um, in the 10,000 ban took a lot of profit. Um, I think Ruffer was one of the, the funds that went
1: on record. Um, yeah, so they sold half their position.
2: Yeah, so we're seeing. I think a lot of these um, trading funds that are buying in for um, shorter term um, like positions, they're, they're, they're taking their five to six x, um, and and that's that's creating a bit of a cap in the zone here. Um, so, yeah, I, th- those are the sellers, is what I'm seeing um, very clearly based on the, the date of the coins that are um, moving
1: into. Exchanges
2: um,
1: got it. I guess that makes sense. Um, so, what something that's happened, uh, i say, over the last six months that has surprised me is um, like the Dogecoin phenomena. You know, I <laughs> it, 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 the ICO craze and the altcoin craze of seventeen, sixteen, seventeen felt again like you know the sort of speculation you see early in a market. And we had Bitcoin back to approaching, what, 80% or so of the overall cryptocurrency market in the fall. Bitcoin's now down to 50% of the cryptocurrency market, right? Dogecoin is $58 billion, And I'm only using that as a stand-in, right? There are a lot of other um, coins and DeFi tokens that you know, are trading at, val- at really big numbers. I-, I-, I guess I'd like your thoughts on that. In terms of the overall market, and and what does it mean for Bitcoin? Good, bad, or indifferent?
2: Well, you know, like um, the altcoin market. There's many ways we can look at it. Like the 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 the, the age-old way um, of looking at it is: look, these are these are um, alternative assets that you can trade in and out of. Um, you do a backtrace on them, and I backtraced, what nearly 2,500 of them across. Uh, all the history that there was, and um, more or less these assets trend down over multiple cycles. But the interesting thing about these assets is that they um, they provide a um, you know kind of beater. Like it, it, it um, in a bull market they can go a lot higher than um, Bitcoin and will outperform Bitcoin. And you know, a bear market they will underperform, and they go through oscillations. So. Um, a lot of traders will, will um, particularly the crypto native traders, will trade in and out of altcoins in different phases of the market, particularly when Bitcoin's in a sideways band. So while you've got the sell-off coming from um, initially the whales from the OGs and now the um, hedge funds selling off and the quarterly rebalancing, um, it's trapped Bitcoin in a sideways band um, and then, um, when you're in that zone, you also get these um, native traders that are like crypto native traders that are like going, okay, this is my opportunity. While Bitcoin's going sideways, I'm not going to get any gains on that. So, I'm going to move capital out of Bitcoin and into these altcoin assets and they're tiny little market caps. So they go wee all the way up um, on very small amounts of capital. Um, So you get that kind of effect. Um, That's the traditional way of explaining it. That is definitely happening. Um, We're in a kind of a 2021 phase of the market where there's a lot of experimentation happening on um, DeFi. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of, some of, you know, a lot of legitimate experimentation, um, a lot of um, complete scams, um, but the, the, there's some very well-engineered DeFi projects that are um, well-engineered in their tokenomics to go upwards. Um, it's attracting a lot of capital. Um, and then there you've got um, a lot of interesting projects that um, actually we didn't have in 2017 that look like... Um, you know they can hold the future of DeFi. Like um, you know, for example, FTX is a shining star of one of these derivative markets, and um, they've they've been creating Serum decks, and they've built that on Solana. And you know we, we've we've got exchanges there we can trade on now, where the transaction fees are sub sub one penny. Um, and all secured on a private key with no counterparty risk, or less counterparty risk. Maybe a little, more, little bit more risk on that technology stack. But um, who doesn't want to trade um, without counterparty risk? You know, these these are very exciting projects. And if you were to think about how that looks like in the traditional world, um, the amount of capital in these these derivative markets is huge. So. Um, these projects are really wanting to get a slice of um, essentially the future of finance, taking a lot of tradfi and moving on to DeFi. It's a big, that's a big, that's um, a big market right there. And so there's a lot of speculative fervor um, between even investors as much as um, traders that are like taking a ride on some of these, um, you know, more scalable next generation platforms. So I think that that that's. It's a, it's a little bit more mature than the 2017 when we had no technology. You could raise money on a on a white paper and a whim and a good story. Now we're seeing some interesting technologies that may be able to carry um, some of the world's finance maybe in four years once it matures, once we get the bugs out of it. And um, a lot of people want to get in on the ground floor of that stuff, you know.
1: Right, right. You know, it's been it's... Uh... It, it seems, though, very early in terms of the real use cases for these DeFi tokens. You know what I mean? Um, in, in terms of you know, there being long-term sustainable business models, I, I haven't seen many that have them yet, or at least in operation. Um, but I do agree. I do agree. It's super exciting, John. Since you're dressed like a Bitcoiner, do you want to bring us home?
0: Absolutely. I have a few just big picture questions. I'd love to hear your answer to Willie, and one is the price of Bitcoin in 2030, what do you think it will be? And what will Bitcoin's role in the global financial system be? Is it gonna become the default global store of value around which every other fiat currency and digital currency and, and the global economy revolves around? Uh, what are your thoughts on those two questions?
2: Yeah, I approach Bitcoin as a technologist um, and I do track the growth rate. Um, I've been on record from the data I'm seeing that next for the five years, 2025, we'll have 1 billion people with exposure to a digital asset, but in Bitcoin or any other one. Um, so what I'm seeing is um, essentially um, software eating the world. Now it's now that we'll figure out how to do scarcity on the internet, which we've never be able to, been able to do before, um, software is eating the finance world. And so I can see um, in 10 years, that's plenty of time to take big chunks, um, maybe even majority chunks out of traditional finance and putting that onto blockchains, um, Bitcoin being the leading store of value. Um, so, you know, um, we're like, yeah, we're in this this kind of transition into a digital age, I'm I'm seeing that like crypto assets is going to eat everything um, eventually. Is is 10 years enough to do that? Maybe. Um, Bitcoin itself uh, I think it's going to eat gold in that time Um, I think it's going to eat some of the store of value in equities which is like, what is it, 100 trillion Um, I think I think that conservatively we're going to be in the ten to fifty trillion dollar um, market cap in ten years' time, um, you know. So yeah, uh, whatever that works out as. Um,
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> so that, that, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 10, ten to fifty x from here. So we'll let our viewers do the math there. But uh, not not a terrible return. Um, do you think Bitcoin? In cryptocurrency, in general, you're talking about software eating the world. So I, I think I might know your answer to this question. Do you think it poses a legitimate threat to U.S. dollar hegemony? Uh, you know, the idea that the U.S. dollar is going to maintain its role as as the the dominant asset through which the United States government can pull all kinds of different levers related to sanctions and its other geopolitical goals.
2: Oh, that's a tough one. You're probably asking the wrong person.
0: I don't actually think that uh,
2: Bitcoin's going to be completely dominant. I think that the future is a basket. Um, I think the US dollar is going to be um, more or less digitized. Um, and, you know, in terms of like, you know, the US is very, very much a large economy. I, I don't think that's going away. So there is such a thing as, you know, a nation. State currency backed by a very large economy with a big um, defense force. So I don't think that's going away, but I do think that um, the future of uh, like money um, will be backed by a basket of assets, and I do think Bitcoin will be a, a major part of that. And um, and so. I don't know if that answers the question. I don't think we're, I'm not a maximalist. I don't think that um, Bitcoin's going to be the money for the future and the only money that's going to swallow everything. I think it's going to be a lot more nuanced and more complex. Um, Right. So, yeah.
0: You're you're sitting in Hong Kong right now. Uh, China's relationship with Bitcoin has been uh, interesting and mixed over the years, where you have a lot of global Bitcoin mining takes place in China. But four years ago, They banned the transfer and issuance of cryptocurrency. But in the last uh, week or so, the deputy at the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, came out and said Bitcoin is not a cryptocurrency in his eyes. And obviously, he speaks on behalf of the government. People don't speak out of turn in China. Uh, But he thinks it could be an investment alternative. And that marks a significant shift in tone from the Chinese government. Obviously, if China were to open things up relating to Bitcoin, that opens up a massive market. Uh, of buyers for Bitcoin and, and you know, Metcalf's law and the, the derivative network impacts of that. Do you think China is on its way to liberalizing the way it looks at Bitcoin? Oh,
2: I don't know. There's one thing I do not know at all. <laughs> I do not know how to read China. Um, I don't know what their strategy is, um, whether or not they want their people to have to, to exposed this asset. Um, it does make sense that they would. I think there was a paper put out by someone in in in, in Chinese um, in, inside China that had, had weighed, weight. I can't remember; it was many years ago. That that did say it made sense for um, their citizens to have exposure to this if it, it got big. Um, it seems it seems it seems like a um, a good move. But I'm not an expert of China um, inside China, so again, I don't I don't think I have any. Any kind of smart thing to say about that?
0: All right. Well, we know Willie, he specializes in on-chain analysis. Anything related to the data uh, on the chain is where Willie uh, really specializes. So look forward to continuing to reading your analysis on your newsletter. Please tell us again about your newsletter, where people can subscribe to it and find it. Okay,
2: so um, yeah, the newsletter is, um, I take a, a read of the blockchain, I look at demand supply, essentially looking at what's happening and what it's projected to happen. Um, so you can make kind of forecasts of mid macro directionality. Um, and so if you, you, if you want to subscribe to that, best way to look it up is to go to my Twitter profile, uh, Woonomic on Twitter, and I, there's a link on my profile page to, to the newsletter. Um, you can subscribe from there.
0: All right, Wu Namik on Twitter. You can go find Willie Wu, uh, his Substack newsletter, which is fantastic. Again, we'll share a link to it when we send uh, this episode out to all of our our community at Salt. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, Willie. Uh, Brett, you have a final word for Willie before we let him go.
1: No, just just again, I'm a fan. This was really fun. Thanks for joining us, Willie. I really appreciate it.
2: Okay, thanks guys. Enjoyed it too.
0: And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Willie Wu. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And please, if you don't mind, spread the word about these Salt Talks, particularly if you have an uncle who rails on the fact that uh, Bitcoin is some type of imaginary currency with no utility or value, send them to Willy Woo's uh, newsletter, his Substack, as well as have them watch this episode. And I think it'll go a long way towards helping to change their mind. But on behalf of Brett and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.